This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker, and this is episode 60. Hello, and a very happy new year to you all. This is our very first episode of 2019, and we are just seven weeks away from the release of my book, also called Hashtag Authentic. If you've already pre-ordered, I have got a very special snail mail gift that I want to send your way. So swing by the show notes after you've listened to this week's episode and you'll find a link where you could submit all your purchase details to claim your special pre-order thank you. Everybody else, there is still time to pre-order. You just need to type hashtag authentic into your local Amazon website or whisper it into the ear of your local favorite bookseller. Also, if you are listening to this as it goes out, so that is Monday, the 7th of January, then a heads up that my Instagram class, The Insta Retreat, is back on sale right now, as in today. This is the big one. It's everything you need to know about growing a strong, profitable and future-proof account. You get weekly question and answer time with me, ongoing support, as well as ongoing community membership with guest speakers from all sorts of related fields and areas of expertise. This is the last time that this class is going to go on sale before my book launches and I'm not entirely sure when the next one will be. So if you want to start 2019 with a real bang and join with a gang of like-minded visual creative hearts, then head to meandola.co.uk and click over to the courses tab. Phew! So that is my uncomfortable moment of self-promotion out of the way. But This week's guest has just written a book telling us all why these feelings of acute discomfort might actually be just what we need. In fact, she credits her successes, an international speaking career, critically acclaimed book, her work as a social mobility commissioner, as well as credit for breathing fresh new life into Cosmo magazine as its new editor-in-chief, all on perpetually stepping out of her comfort zone. Here's what she had to say when we chatted just before Christmas. Farah, welcome to Hashtag Authentic. Thanks for having me. Could you give anyone who's uninitiated into the wonderful world of your work a bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. So um, so I'm currently editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, where I've been for almost four years now. Um, and I'm also, I get to call myself an author now, finally. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yes, I know, it does feel a bit like that uh, and also a bit uh, scary. I'm also the author of my first book, um, The Discomfort Zone. Um, but you know, even though people see me as, a, as an editor, as an editor-in-chief, it sounds far too scary and kind of devil wears proud of what I really do. So I always really say I'm a journalist and, and that's what I've done for the last 20 years of my career. It definitely does sound devil wears Prada. Like that's how I'm picturing. Not, no, no, no. <laughs> um, so how did you get started as a journalist? Was that something you always wanted to do? Uh, well, well I, you know, I knew that I love writing um, and I've always um, throughout my life kept a diary, but I didn't know because I grew up in um, I grew up in Salford in Manchester and I had quite a strict um, I had quite a strict upbringing. Mum was English. Dad was from Pakistan. And um, as any um, of your readers who are Asian may know, and I'm generalizing here, of course, but you know, having a, a strict Asian father meant that he expected all of us, and there were four of us in our in my family, so two girls, um, two boys. He wanted us all to be either doctors or solicitors or engineers. Um, and 
the idea of being a creative, um, I suppose, because, you know, the truth is creative industries, they never pay particularly well. Um, you know, even when you get to be an editor and people think you're, you're um, loaded, it, 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 it's not why you do it, really. You don't do it for the money. And so I think that's why my dad, you know, he never really thought about his kids could be successful creatives. And so therefore, to answer your question, I never thought about being a journalist. Um, and it was only when my elder sister, who's 10 years older than me, um, she was very dutiful. She went and became a solicitor and was miserable. Um, and I remember one of the only things that she used to love doing was she used to love reading women's magazines. And um, back in this was must have been like the early 90s, there was a women's magazine, um, which was kind of like a copy of Cosmo called More magazine. I remember and More, yeah. Do you remember? Right. So um, there was a competition in More magazine. And it was to win a date with a male model. And I think you had to do a bit of writing to win the competition. Anyway, lo and behold, um, I think she was 24, 25. She won the competition. And it was less about the male model, but it was more about she came down to London and she saw that there were jobs. You could be a journalist. There, there was a full-time living to be made from it. And so she gave up her career as a solicitor, um, much to my dad's um, you know, dismay <laughs> and, and anger at the time. And it kind of paved the way for me because she made the move. She made it acceptable to be a, a journalist. And she told me, um, you know, if you want to be a journalist, you kind of got to get yourself down to London. I think that's different now, I have to add, I don't think. But in my day, to be a journalist on a, on a magazine, you had to be in London. And, and so that's how it, it happened. I went to university in London after being rejected from Oxford. And, and I used my time at university to do work experience throughout um, throughout my time at uni and, and so by the time I graduated I was in a pretty good position to get a job. There's so much interesting stuff in there because yeah like I don't think many people who live in Manchester as a fellow Mancunian um, w would grow up thinking I could be the editor of Cosmo one day it feels that whole London bubble feels so far removed yeah. when you're kind of up here even now I think. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And I, I think there is a bubble in, in London and I think there's a bubble in the media. So there are all these bubbles existing. And I think, you know, for me, being a northerner, feeling a northerner at heart, but having lived most of my life not in Manchester anymore, I do think there is not a divide. It's not a north and south divide. But I think you're right. You feel that you are so far removed from it. And, you know, you don't hear many accents like mine anymore. And, and if people are northern, they've often flattened out the northernness. So, uh, you know, that's why one of the things that we do at Cosmo and, and probably um, I, I can probably share it with you now, actually. I mean, it's not hit newsstands yet, but in our January issue of Cosmo, so out December, um, we are doing um, four scholarships. So we're doing Cosmo scholarships and um, it's the first time we've ever done it. And we're looking for um, someone to uh, win a fashion scholarship, a beauty scholarship, an art scholarship and a features writing scholarship. And they'll come down to London for the month and we will pay for their accommodation. We'll, we'll, we will get a house for them. We'll pay for their shopping. We'll pay for their um, travel and transport you know, you don't have to have any qualifications to enter this. And that's always been my big thing, because I think one of the problems, and I don't think this is about North and South, but I think there is a, um, I think there is a social mobility issue with creative industries. And I think, you know, the reality is not always, but particularly on magazines, you, you mainly have to be down in London and being down in London, if you are not born in, in London or in the Southeast, it, it's expensive and the rent is prohibitively expensive. So 
we're trying to i mean we have cosmo houses as well it might interest your your listeners where we if you want to get a job in the creative industries um, and you're just starting out because we know creative industries when you're just starting out you're on no money um we opened um, a couple of cosmopolitan houses in the capital and we're branching that out in January where all we ask is we charge rent, but it's minimal. Um, and they're in amazing locations. These houses, one, one is in Clapham, like kind of, you know, uh, zone two, I think it is. And all we ask is if you are a creative, you can come and apply to live in our house, but you must volunteer um, a couple of hours every month of your creative skills to young women and young men um in the area in which you live so it's a very long-winded way of answering your question but i suppose the point i'm trying to say is it's not easy to to do it unless you get a helping hand i think and if your parents are not in a position to financially help you where are you going to go for that help so hopefully you know cosmo cosmo can be that help that's fantastic is that all kind of new things that have come about since you've been there or are they initiatives that have been running a while no, they're all new. We've done it in the last 18 months. I mean, you know, it's always been at the heart of Cosmo. Cosmo's always been about, you know, you know, everybody now says, oh, I'm all about empowering women. And, and I always say to my team, you know, Cosmo has always been about empowerment in action. And what I mean by that is it's like, well, how are you empowering? Show me the tangible thing you're doing to change their life. And and so the magazine has always, that's always been its ethos, whether it's, you know, doing women's marches, et cetera. But, but this actually housing women, because we didn't think it could be done. I mean, you know, the idea of, you know, I wanted to have this Cosmo house where all these young women would live together. It was a pipe dream. You know, I didn't think it would happen. And thanks to my amazing team, we've made it happen. And and, and actually, we're very friendly with all the girls that, that live there now. Um, and we help them in the magazine as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's all happened since I've been here. But but it's really my team who have, who have made it happen, I have to say. It's amazing. And it does feel like Cosmopolitan kind of under your leadership. I don't want to give you all the credit if, you, if it's a team job, but... Yeah, it has, has really come into a new generation. It's kind of come into a rebirth since you've come on board. Yeah, I think, you know, I think all magazines have a duty um, of care to what's going on in culture and you have to change, you know, and that's why editors change. And and magazines, when editors leave and, you know, when, you know, I don't, I hope this doesn't happen for a very, very long time, but, but when I um, leave Cosmo, you know, whenever that w- will be, a new editor will come in and they will have a new vision. And, and I think that's what happened. You know, editors, um, they all come in with these new new visions of, of what they want for the magazine. However, you can't change the values of the magazine. So I've always had to be very true to what Cosmo stands for. Um, but just make it more relevant, I suppose, for what's going on with your generation, I suppose, now, which is, I think, you know, I mean, I don't know. How old are you? I'm 34. Okay. so So you are technically... A millennial mm, just about yeah <laughs> and so I think the experience you have had growing up and fighting for your career um it's been much harder than me you know it was hard for me but I think you guys it's so hard because you've come of age where the economic you know structure has completely changed you know the whole idea now of um you know you can do anything and be anything well that's right and that's great but it means you have to work nonstop. You have to hustle nonstop. You're not going to have a job for life. You may not have a pension. You probably won't get a mortgage. So I think things are so much harder for you guys that when I took over Cosmo, that's one of the things I said to my team. I said, we've got to help them. And I don't know how we're going to do that, but we've got to be more than just entertainment. I think the pages of the mag will always be about entertainment and information. But I was really interested in what we could do 
outside of, of the pages of the, of the magazine. So hopefully, you know, hopefully um, it's doing some good. It really sounds like it is because that's my impression of the kind of the print world is that a lot of it hasn't, I guess, moved past the patriarchal career structure that that has been in place long term. And so things like that you do have to intern for free for a very long time normally to get a foot in the door at any publication. So something like being able to win a scholarship and have your accommodation and everything paid means that that's accessible to a whole range of people who previously would have just been discluded. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, what I have to say, and that's why I love, without sounding like a corporate robot, it's why I love um, Hearst. And, and I've been at this company longer than I've been at any other company. We don't do these unpaid internships. You know, you have to pay people. You know, that, that, you know that's how it works, right? You do work, you get paid. But, but I think, you know, one of the things that I've always found, I mean, I do lots of competitions in Cosmo. And whenever I talk to people, I say, I'm always, if, if you look on my Instagram or if you look in the magazine, I'm always telling people you can pitch. Um, you know, I don't um, I don't think you have to be a journalist to pitch me an idea. If you have a brilliant idea and you have a strong voice, I think editors or good editors should be able to work with writers and nurture them. Um, my biggest problem has been, okay, well, we've got all these opportunities at Cosmo. And yes, they're not jobs on, well, we do have jobs, of course, but the, the scholarship or writing for Cosmo um, how do I reach people who are beyond the people that read my magazine? And and so that is my my big mission. So if if any of your listeners um, work with charities or work with people who perhaps don't know about these opportunities, my, my wish is just please share it far and wide because I think the only way media is going to get diversity of thought and, and, and opinion is really mixing up the, the, the class system that we have within it. Um, so yeah, if you can help, I'd be very grateful. I suspect there's lots of people listening actually that could tick those boxes. We've got a very diverse readership um, and lots of people who've got that exact struggle you just mentioned of like not fitting into the existing career structure, not being able to find their job for life and having to think really creatively about how they can build something different. And it's that kind of brings me to something else yeah. I wanted to ask you about, which was um, I saw around the time of kind of your book launch, which was now a few weeks ago, a month ago, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. So there was um, a raft of articles, I think, all stemming from one interview you'd given about this notion that uh, women can't have it all, and the oh. right-wing press had obviously seized on this this quote from you and were quite gleeful. It felt like some of the headlines were, you know, kind of like, "See women back to the kitchen. Here she is. She's she's got this job, and she says she can't have it all." And I thought. It might be an important point to try and clarify in case anyone has seen only some of the more twisted versions of that headline. Do you know what's really interesting? I haven't seen any of the twisted versions. I've only um, had a hell of a lot of women, um, mainly mothers, actually, um, saying, I'm really glad someone was really honest about that. And, and the truth is, to, to clarify it, um, which is very kind of you, to clarify, it was about I didn't feel that I could have it all. And I am sure there are women out there who do have it all, you know. But 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 for me, and I thought as a woman who has a platform to talk, I thought it was really important that it's like, I'm not saying go back to the kitchen sink. Of course not. And that's such a reflective way to look at that piece. And, and it's a misunderstanding, actually, of, of the piece. The piece is you we are told and actually that it came from Cosmo originally was you can have it all and and, and actually yeah. the piece what I said in the piece was it was one of the very very famous editors of Cosmo she had a book called having it all and of course what that set in motion was for women this enormous pressure 
to 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 not only to have it all, but that you should want to have it all. And actually, what I discovered was she never wanted the book to be called that. She said that's not what it should be called, and it was the publisher who said, "No, it's great, it's zeitgeisty." And and so she, I don't think she believed she didn't have children like me. And and so my thing was, and this why it is a it's a deeply personal thing, is that I. Um, I couldn't have children. And then when I was when I had to kind of make a quite a clinical decision about, okay, how much do you really want kids? And and me and my husband thought, well, we'll go down the route of IVF. And of course, IVF is, is is no picnic. It's really difficult. It's difficult for your relation. It can be difficult for your relationship. It can be a lot of stress on the woman. Um, I had just taken on a massive job. And I didn't know if I could go through that. And also, I think, and, and this is the thing, this is the real thing, really, is that I didn't have the ovarian ache that a lot of women I know had. So it was different for me. Um, but but I think, you know, the only thing that I hope women can take away from that piece is it is not me saying go back to the kitchen. Unless, of course, that is what you want, mm. right? You know, if that is what you want, then all power to you. My thing is, I think you don't need to put so much pressure on yourself. It's that having it all-ish is perhaps a more realistic expectation, whatever that looks like for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because what you're describing, like it sounds like your husband had to make just as much of a choice. Like everybody has to make that choice in life of kind of what what is the route I'm going to take? And that automatically yeah. means some routes don't get taken. That's it. And, you know, he would have had to give up his career, which he was willing to do, completely fine with doing that. But but when we look, when we looked at it all, it was like, well, how much do we really, really want this? And how much are we having a family because we feel like we should have everything? Sometimes you don't want everything, you know, and, and, and I think that's okay to not want everything. Um, you know, so, so that was the point. Yeah, that was the point. But you know, the press will misconstrue things because it's outrage and we live in a world of outrage oh, and yeah, extreme clickbait. Yeah, so actually, things which are slightly more nuanced and in the middle, no one's interested in that. But that was that was supposed to be the takeaway. There's a quote. I don't. I wish I could remember who it's by, but it's along the lines of, "When women were told they could be anything, we heard it as we should be everything." And I think that that's kind of at the heart of it, isn't it? That's it. That is the point. You do not need to be take a load off if you need to. Um, you know, and and I think that's the other thing, isn't it, about getting to the top? If you don't want to get to the top. So what? That's okay. That's okay too. It's about choice. And defining success for yourself, I suppose, because for some people it's financial, for some people it's kind of visible success, for some people it's family, and we all get yes. to choose. That that was that was what feminism was for, was to be able to That's choose exactly. and, and pave our own path. Exactly. The point is, I support women, whatever their choice is. It doesn't look like your 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 exactly your idea of success will be different to mine will be different to you know the lady who choose to stay at home making jam they're all good choices that's the point um so to pivot let me just see what I've got do I want to cover um yeah. take me away from this discussion before I get I'll say something <laughs> that will offend someone no it's all and good you know, you've been perfect it's okay to be offended you know when when people say you offend me with what you say or I even don't like calling trolls trolls because they're allowed, they're allowed, you know, they're just people with, with who are upset about something you've said. And that's OK. I'm a massive believer in goes back to what I was saying, Sarah, about divergent thought. You've got to have opposing viewpoint to kind of um, 
to kind of reach a, as near a correct answer as you can get. That's the whole point. That's why we have left and right. You know, I am going off on a tangent now. You should pivot quickly. No, but I, I totally agree. Like the amount of times someone's contacted me about something I've said online and gone, well, actually, this is my perspective. And once you get past those defensive feelings, which are absolutely there and a big barrier sometimes. Yeah. But often when you can hear what's at the heart of what the person saying, then you come out of it like, okay, now I know more of the nuance of the situation. Now I'm kind of, I feel like I've been educated. I think that's right. And you know what? I think the greatest thing in, in, in people, and I always say this to my team, is people who are brave enough to change their minds. I think that's what I really respect in people who, like you're saying, you know, once you look beyond all the emotion and you start to have a dialogue with someone, it's okay to change your mind about something. Go, do you know what? I was wrong about that. Um, so, and that only happens by having two people in a room who um, who discuss both sides and then you go away and make up your own mind. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it really doesn't. It's, it's kind of the discomfort of being wrong or the discomfort of not yeah. knowing and admitting that because you don't, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like you didn't get into Oxford. We don't hear those stories. No one's telling the stories of the things that they got wrong or the things that didn't happen and the, the things that felt like failure. Right. Well, you know, in, in Silicon Valley now, I think it's Facebook, but, but don't quote me on that. They're now doing failure CVs where it's CVs um, of everything they failed at. And I, th- I think I did an editor's letter about it where I wrote my CV of everything I failed at and all the jobs I applied for and I didn't get, including two at Cosmo. They would never let me into Cosmo. I never got the job. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's important. And I do think the stigma of failure is being taken away, but it does take people to talk about, you know, it's that simple. All of this kind of brings us then to, um, quite neatly, to the book you mentioned right at the beginning, which is The Discomfort Zone. Right. So um, I have both the audiobook and the paper copy, not to be a fangirl here or anything, um, but I've been really enjoying it. Could you kind of, for anyone who's not come across it yet, how would how have you been describing the book? Oh, in a very, very simple elevator pitch, it's essentially, you know, life is tough, but but you are tougher. And and the book explores if you don't feel like you're you're tough, it, it explains exactly how um, you can you can I suppose uncover your your potential through putting yourself through challenge, through kind of forcing yourself into uncomfortable situations. Um, so yeah, and and obviously you know there's a lot of memoir from my own personal experience, but but the more interesting part of the book I think is um, there's a lot of science, but there's a lot of very successful people in there, and and their stories of how they got to the top as well, and and it wasn't easy. That that's that's the thing, you know, success. Um, it's a lot of grinding away, you know, until you get there, and when you get there, it, it's fleeting. So you've got to be. Um, I, this is not the elevator pitch now because it's very long. Um, <laughs> to be comfortable with the uncomfortable because essentially a lot of life is, is like that and and so you know the, the book gives you a, a kind of what I call the BMD which is brief moments of discomfort it gives you a method of how to get through life so it doesn't feel tough and uncomfortable. Um, I really liked the analogy you used quite early in the book about getting in the freezing cold swimming pool when you know it's going to be a really nice swim but sometimes like the the fear of getting in the pool for those awful few first moments stops you from getting in there at all that's right and and of course you know we've all done this you you get into a freezing cold swimming pool and you have a moment where you decide right you, you either go right I'm going to submerge myself and do this and then once you've done that it's absolutely as easy as breathing in fact it's lovely or 
you can't you can't you're overwhelmed by the by by the the cold the fear of the cold and you get out and and you know that's very much what the human mind is like it's like you know when we are scared um and it's really interesting i discovered this as part of the book when you're scared of course your body manifests with sweating palms a, a beating heart um you know your stomach feel you feel nauseous but actually when you're excited these are the same physical manifestations you have. But but the problem is, of course, is that when most of us feel this way, we tell ourselves that it's because we're scared and we're fearful. And once you tell yourself that, that's when the problems begin. Because, you know, I mean, we see this when people have stage fright and they are so overwhelmed by fear that their 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 kind of mental capacity becomes clouded. However, and, and there's, you know, really robust scientific research which which backs this up is if you tell yourself that those feelings you are having are not because you're scared, but because you feel really challenged and you feel excited, then something quite, it's almost magical actually happens to your body. So your lungs expand, blood starts circulating around your body quicker. And because of that, you know, more oxygen gets to your brain and you are able to make sharper decisions, um, which of course results in a more successful outcome. So the really interesting thing is, it's all in your mind. It's all within your your power to change. But you only, like in the swimming pool, have literally nanoseconds in which to make that decision, which is, am I going to be overwhelmed by the fear of this situation or am I going to see it as challenging? And if you see it as challenging and you step into the pool or the discomfort zone, that's when kind of the success and the true enjoyment and, and also you uncover the potential of who you are. Um, I, I just think a lot of us don't don't do it. That that's the problem. Well, we're not taught to as well. I think like it's interesting because that exact thing you've described. Um, there's a Gestalt therapy adage, I guess, that says fear is excitement without the breath, which is exactly what you've just described, right? Like opening your lungs and getting the oxygen back in. They're the same emotion. It's just one you clam up and one you're much more open and. So my daughter is five and quite often when she tells me she's scared, we talk about this and I'm like, let's breathe and let's maybe it's excitement. Let's see if we can find the excitement because I feel like we don't talk about it. We don't teach our kids it. You know, there's nothing in school that makes you think fear is OK and, and how to lean into that. And no, until I read your book, I'd never really seen it spelled out so clearly. Oh, well, well that I mean, that's that's great. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right at school. I don't think we are conditioned to think that way. And actually, I think what I worry about is happening now is actually, as you said, you're not taught to lean into the, and I'm not going to call it fear, you're not taught to lean into the challenge. But what I am seeing is we are now being taught to lean back or to lean outwards from anything which looks like fear or anxiety. And and, and I, I do question whether coddling people um, to such an extent. So, you know, things like um, in the universities at the moment, we have these safe spaces. I think it's in Manchester University, uh, I think. Um, they stopped clapping because some people found it was a triggering experience. Well, you know, exposure therapy, we know works. And, and we know that if you're afraid of something, obviously you don't confront yourself with it head on because that, of course, would be um, that would be anxiety inducing. But but what you do is in a controlled manner, you expose yourself to the very thing that you are afraid of. And it doesn't stop being frightening, but you become braver and therefore you are able to manage it better. So so that's my, you know, that's why I have this big, I get really angry about people calling your generation, generation snowflake. It's like, 
don't tell them that they're fragile because they're not. And if you tell someone that they're fragile and they're delicate, then they will behave that way. And of course, we're not meant to be, you know, we were growing up in caves. We were hardwired to to withstand a little bit of struggle and, and, and to carry a load. I feel like I do have to actually have to add as a caveat here. I think the clapping thing at Manchester University may have been slightly mis- misreported because my understanding really? is that it was more for students on the autist- autistic spectrum who found it to be um, like a sensory overload. But of course, in that way that we've already talked about, the press likes to, right. and especially likes to, to slander this generation, right? So the millennials, it's the perfect exactly. headline to a kind of, to, to say this, to, to perpetuate this message that they're too fragile, when actually I think it's more a celebration in that instance of we're getting people with more kind of uh, less neurotypical people through the university system and maybe we just were compromising to make sure everyone was having a good time. So, Which makes which makes complete sense. And, and you know, you're right, the media are absolutely complicit in this. It's like it's a really dangerous myth to perpetuate this that, you know, I didn't know that about the clapping and everybody I've spoken to is like, oh, yeah, I know, isn't it, isn't it terrible? But you're right, it, it is. And that's not the job of the press the press is about both sides of the story but of course as we've discussed the culture is extremes that that's what people swing towards um so good you've just you've just said it straight and you've set me straight yes well only on on yeah it's fine <laughs> only on Manchester University yes okay good <laughs> I don't know about anybody else um okay. so I'm curious to know kind of what your discomfort zone is right now. If you, if this is something that's kind of obviously an ongoing process that you're kind of living your life by, what's uncomfortable right now in your life and um, what's next in that sense? Um, oh, God, you know, I have, I have, I, I tend not to see discomfort in terms that I've got this big project coming in. Every day there are bits of discomfort for me, things, meetings I, would, I don't want to have, you know, I don't say confrontation is the wrong word but meetings which are uncomfortable Mm. you know I have to have I have one of those today um I think you know I mean look in terms of I'm constantly grappling with the role of of magazine brands now as are a lot of journalists I I I feel what's uncomfortable is what I've just spoken to you about about you know this world of extremes and, and and media reporting you know what role do we have to play um, so I have constant discomfort and, and constant things which worry me. But but I say worry me, they are on my mind. But I guess I, I'm now at a point because of the book and, and, and because of years of kind of um, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I don't really see them as discomfort. I see them all as challenges and, and kind of puzzles that I have to try as best as I can, because I don't always have the right answer, as best as I can figure out an answer to there are big and small ones. I mean, look, I've been invited to some red carpet event for dogs. And, you know, I've got these two lunatic dogs. I mean, they're, they're literally going to eat the set. So that is comfort. <laughs> but there are just, you know, there's loads of things. And, and you just got to figure out, OK, well, well how am I going to get through this? I mean, look, I'm, I'm being facile there. But um, but that is on my mind at this exact moment in time. That is on my mind. As someone with so, a very badly behaved dog, I can relate entirely. <laughs> these celebrities with these impeccably behaved city dogs and i've just got these two mutts who are just reprobates so yeah that's not discomfort but but it might be when they destroy they destroy the red carpets i'm looking forward to the press coverage of that (laughs) um it's interesting you touched on then kind of the role of magazines um because that does seem to be like 
it's a difficult time right now for, for print media. Um, and there's quite often, I feel like there's some conflict or some perceived conflict between people who maybe do kind of more like what I do, kind of the uh, new media or people who are kind of carving their own niche to find their own voice and the more traditional print media, because there's almost a sense from, from some people like, you know, the bloggers have stolen the, the <laughs> journalists' jobs. And I don't, you know, I've never um, felt like that. I've always thought that I actually think blogging for for an editor like me on a magazine like Cosmo, blogging has been really rich for me because a lot of um, the teen magazines that perhaps you grew up with, actually, and, and, and I certainly grew up with, a lot of those have gone. And so when you're editing a magazine like Cosmo, what used to happen is all the kind of young, um, hungry voices would come through, they would come up through Team Mag, so they'd get their first job on a Team Mag, and by the time they got to Cosmo, they'd kind of um, really developed um, a voice. But those training grounds aren't there anymore. And so what I do is I look to bloggers. I think, well, if the Team Mags aren't there anymore, well, where are these people who are, and in some ways, bloggers, there's good and bad in everything, right? There's bad journalists, there's, there's you know, um, whoever didn't report the clapping, in, uh, you know, incident was it's not the job correctly. Um, there are good bloggers, there are bad bloggers, but but the the good bloggers actually, I th- I see them as opportunity, and in some ways I think they're even better than who we had on Team Max because if you are a blogger, what you're now doing is you're totally self motivating, so it really carves out those people who are fearless and hustlers from those who just want to write a few nice articles. So. I, I think it is a missed opportunity to see bloggers as competition. That's always been my thoughts. Um, but but I, I know what you mean. There, there has been I, – I like to think it is changing now, actually, but I think a couple of years ago there, there was more tension, perhaps. Yeah, and understandably so when kind of, you know, people's jobs are on the line and, and livelihoods. But, I mean, you and I first – sorry. No, no, I'm just saying people – exactly. People behave in, in sometimes um, – questionable ways when they are scared you know you behave differently absolutely um but you and I first connected actually because of the Cosmo Influencer Awards which um you, uh, for anyone who doesn't know about those how would you describe the Influencer Awards so the Influencer Awards started as the Blog Awards so when I came in as editor the Blog Awards had been going and I think Cosmo were the first people to do it so that's what I mean Cosmo has always acknowledged that bloggers are a re- there's a real bed of talent there and we wanted to work with them. So when I joined, um, there were questions about, you know, what do we do with the blog awards? Does it become something else? And actually, we changed it to become the Influencer Awards. And the Influencer Awards, basically, I mean, you I mean, you remember it. It's, it's a beautiful award ceremony. We, we we work with Pandora, who do those beautiful, you know, beautiful jewellery. And um, it, it's acknowledging the talent within the world of, of influencers, which is, and, and you will, of course, content of the year, right? I'm pretty sure yeah, so so that basically is the equivalent of writer of the year. So yeah, so we had all sorts of different categories. So we had, um, you know, travel influencer of the year, beauty influencer of the year, fashion influencer of the year. Um, I think it was campaigner of the year, which Monroe won, Monroe Bergdorf. So what it was is really, it was kind of an acknowledgement to you guys that what you do is absolutely valuable. And it is, it is, um, it is just as valuable as, as what we do. Um, and, and in some ways, it's different. And that's right that it's different. But you are absolutely part of, of, of the journalistic community. But, you know, so so it's, it's a really, um, it's, I mean, you guys, you know, it's mainly for, for kind of well-known influencers. But we do have a category which absolutely anybody can enter as well. Um, so, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that for next year. 
yeah, I'll put all the links and everything for the previous years into the show notes so that people can kind of keep an eye on the right spot. And what was really lovely, actually, was it was such a diverse group of winners um, in kind of just in every way, in kind of age, body type, skin colour, ethnicity, everything. It was just a really good mix, which was lovely to see. And, you know, I think a lot of people can be very cynical about that and go, oh, was it deliberate? The the, the beauty of, 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 of Cosmo is that it's about... The, the pot now, I think, is uh, particularly in what you guys do. So going back to what we were talking about, diversity in media, if you're an influencer, anybody can become an influencer. And that, I think, is what you saw in our awards is, you know, it was diverse because the pot is diverse. You know, the voices within the influencer community, they are they are so diverse. And that's why I think it's an amazing world to look at. Um, so, yeah, that's why it was, as you know, it was diverse because that's what your world represents quite rightly. And that's, that's a really beautiful place for the two to meet, I think, isn't it? Like it, that then comes back around to your goals about making journalism and making Cosmo and, and print media more accessible to everybody. That's it. And, you know, I, what I think is it's the London thing. I mean, the thing about you, you're working in Manchester. You didn't have to uproot your life. And mm. I think that's what's brilliant about influencers and um you know, I want to get to a place where we have more kind of stringers who work across the country reporting for Cosmo. Um, it's the London thing. That is the tricky thing. That's why I think, you know, the Cosmo houses and the scholarship is so important because rightly or wrongly, a lot of the magazines are still based down here. And, and that is that, that, that is a re- that's a problem. That's a social mobility thing. That's a money thing. And, and you know, bit by bit, we're going to try and work on that. Yeah, because it seems to me like it, it should be t- entirely possible, given everything, given that we're doing this interview and I'm up in Yorkshire now and you're down in London. Like, admittedly, we've had some tech yeah. issues. But yeah, I think if you want to work on the feed, in that you, you're going to have to be down here. But I do think we will get to a place very soon, you know, and I think it's happening as well, which is exactly you have journalists who work for us and they are anywhere that, and, and they are reporting on what's going on in their kind of microculture whether that's what's going on in Liverpool or Manchester that's what I personally as an editor need more so if anybody has any ideas you know there may be the world's most you know most exciting story going on in Manchester in a tiny pocket that I don't know about which is why I need people to to tell me so where can people find you online if they want to get in touch about any of these things or find out more about what you're doing yeah, so do you know what? And I shouldn't say this for my sins, but I advertise all our jobs on Instagram. I don't ask for qualifications. People often pitch me through Instagram. And you know what it is? It's because if I give my email, my email, as you can imagine, it's full. I mean, it's so big. But Instagram, it's the direct messages. And that may be how we even corresponded yeah. at the beginning. It's not, so, it's not so polluted in there. So so often I just say to people, and it's short, right? So I don't want long essays. Like if you have an idea just ping me a, a direct message that's not an open invitation to everyone <laughs> just yeah, read the mag don't pitch me anything that is not specific to cosmo make sure you read the mag and look at exactly what it is that we cover because we have a lot of people going i want to do a column well we don't do columns what we do and actually these are the only stories i'm really looking for are personal memoir pieces so if someone has a very very um um if someone has a very personal story or investigative stories where people investigate so we did a big story on the um how instagram now there's a huge number of young women becoming escorts through instagram that's an investigation so those are the sorts of things that we tend to commission at cosmo 
Fantastic. That'll be really valuable for people to to know what direction to go in. Um, and your book, The Discomfort Zone, is available everywhere. Yes, all good bookstores and Amazon. And if you've read it, can you please leave me an Amazon review? There I don't know go. what good that will do. But no, yeah, please. I believe it, it affects the <laughs> algorithms. I asked my publisher this the other day and they gave me a very complicated answer. So yes, reviews, please. Go and review all your favourite authors, in fact, listeners, because it's very important. Yes, uh, Farah, thank you so much for speaking to me today um, and good luck with whatever is next for you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye-bye. You'll find show notes for this week's episode at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 60. And I'm going to include links to everything Farah mentioned and so generously shared in our conversation today. And I'll also, of course, include links for where you can grab a copy of my book and Farah's and details of that Insta Retreat class for anyone who might be interested. Farah is brilliantly active on Instagram, where she's currently sharing journalism help as well as tips on pitching to magazines in a series of lives. So do stop by her page. She's at Farah Store, F-A-R-R-A-H-S-T-O-R-R. And you'll also find me on there, at me and Orla. But let Farah know your thoughts about today's episode and her work, and let's keep this conversation going. Thank you all, as always, for listening. I hope you've had a brilliant start to the new year and I can't wait to see you next week. Music